Hi, everybody. My name is Hillary, and I have the privilege of serving as a leader in the Fall Women's Bible Study. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 in the NIV. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Thank you, Hillary. As the title suggests, Philippians will be our field guide to joy, a book that we will be looking at all the way to December. And one of the most important aspects of this is the theme of finding joy in our identity. We'll simply look at the first two verses, and I guarantee you it will be worth it. So let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the joy that you give to us. Thank you that we can experience joy in every area of life if we truly find our joy in a relationship with you. I pray for those who do not yet know this joy. I pray that today they would hear, understand, and believe in the gospel and experience the joy of salvation. I pray for those of us who have forgotten the joy of knowing Jesus, that you would remind us I pray for those who feel as if their joy has been robbed. We pray today that you would begin to restore their joy. So as we open your word, would you speak to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit and may we be changed. We ask these things together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Well, 2,000 years ago, a part-time tent maker was thrown into jail for creating a public disturbance. And during his imprisonment, he wrote a couple of letters to some men and women. Now on the surface, that doesn't even sound noteworthy, like it doesn't even make it on the Wikipedia page. And yet today, these letters have been translated into hundreds of languages and read by millions of people across the globe and across history. 
Now, few of us would be able to name many of the, the great rulers and political leaders from 2,000 years ago, but the name Paul the Apostle is known the world over, and his letters are contained in the New Testament. Philippians contains just four little chapters, but they are four chapters that contain some of the most profound, life-changing truths about joy. And beginning today and throughout this fall, we're going to ask these questions. What is true joy? Where can I find this joy? What does this joy look like? And what are some of the practices that can actually promote joy in my life? We need a field guide. And the book of Philippians is precisely that. From start to finish, joy is the dominant theme of the apostle when he writes these words to a church that lived in a Roman province called Philippi, an incredibly cosmopolitan city rich in heritage, culture, and influence. It's no wonder that Paul the Apostle chose this city as an outpost for his gospel mission to share the Christian faith. And as a result of going there and preaching the gospel, he left behind a diverse group of new Christians who, years later, were in need of some reminders, some lessons about joy. And this fall, we are reading over their shoulder. And I think we need this. Because let's be honest, we all have countless privileges in our life, access to all kinds of, of information and resources, and yet we're all stressed out. We all deal with anxiety. We all deal with worry. Two of you in the room are like, speak for yourself. I'm fine. Well, the rest of us, we don't see this in society. I don't know about you, but when I think of North America, I don't think we're a society that is marked by joy. It's not the impression I get when I wake up and I read the news or, or hardly ever on social media. If I go on social media, my summary is like, we're all going to die. It's basically the vibe that I get. We are in desperate need of joy. And sadly, there are times when we don't see joy within the church. And it should not be so. Friends, one of the things we'll learn about in this letter is the church should be like a colony of joy, like an otherworldly community that, that has tapped into a supernatural source of joy to where we live as an outpost and everyone around us is tripping out and they're like, where'd you get this joy? And we're like, Jesus. That's the gist of Philippians. We need joy. Throughout this letter, Paul talks about joy, but he does it in different ways. In chapter one, he'll talk about joy in relation to peace and righteousness. In chapter two, he'll talk about joy in relation to encouragement. In chapter three, he'll talk about joy in its relation to maturity and growth. And in chapter four, he'll talk about joy as it pertains to freedom from worry. And so our journey is gonna take us through a diverse range of topics then. We're gonna learn about relationships suffering, purpose, leadership, habits, work, anxiety, conflict resolution. That'll be a good one. Generosity and friendship. 
We're going to learn about how we can find joy in all these areas. But one of the most powerful ways to get this idea of joy across to us is to talk about joy and identity. And Paul will be our teacher, which is absolutely remarkable because if you look closely at his life, at least on a surface letter uh, level, he would be the most unlikely candidate to do so. The background for Philippians is helpful. Paul's circumstances were absolutely miserable. And he's like, hi, I'm going to be the poster child for joy. And you're like, what? Think about it. This man has been imprisoned, in many ways forgotten, and his future is uncertain. At the time of this letter, he is a prisoner of Rome because of the message he preached. And after this, this is all after a four and a half year ordeal that began in the city of Jerusalem with him being arrested on false charges. Along the way, he was betrayed, beaten, shipwrecked, and denied basic human necessities and treatment. But don't take my word for it. Take his, because he's given us a memoir. In another letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church, he describes his experience that serves as the background for Philippians. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Friends, if you think your Christian life has been hard, I introduce you to the Apostle Paul. Some of us are like, my flight got canceled. Ah. And he's like, now, could it get any worse? Yes. Guess who made it worse for Paul? Other Christians. If you've ever had a bad experience in the church, Paul's was worse. Again, in his letter to the Corinthian church, he says, besides everything else, being shipwrecked and almost dying on a daily basis, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. And listen to the behavior he describes of other Christians towards himself in Philippians chapter 1. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Listen, other Christians were like, let's make Paul miserable. And they're like, yeah, amen. Let's do that. I highlight this because for some of you, your experience in church, you're like, what? Other Christians? How can they be lame? Paul's like, I understand. Some of Paul's very own ministry companions had forsaken him. Here's my point. If there was ever a person who had a reason to be bitter in the church, it's Paul the Apostle. So think 
about how Paul could have introduced himself when he wrote a letter from jail. He could have said, Paul, a jaded believer, unsatisfied Christian, disgruntled church member, wounded friend, abandoned minister, victim of the system. And though the tough circumstances he experienced could have led him to make those statements, he doesn't. They do not define him. Why? Because Paul has an unshakable identity. His experiences, no matter how difficult and heartbreaking, did not define him. And friends, your circumstances and difficulties, no matter how hard, need not define you. How Paul presents himself reveals what he believes matters most about himself. See, some of us are like, wait a minute, we're only studying the first two verses? That's right, buckle up. We're going to blaze our way through Philippians, starting with all two verses this morning. But listen, we're doing that because the greetings of Paul are never mere pleasantries. They are statements and expressions of identity. Paul knows who he is. Do you know who you are? If I asked you this morning to participate in an exercise where you took a note or on your phone and you wrote down in a list the things you think define you the most, I wonder what you would write. If you were to make a list of I am statements, like I am blank, I am blank, that represented what you think defines you the most, I wonder what you would write. Because all of us in this room represent many experiences, both good and bad. Which ones are defining you? I ask these questions because if you want to get the weight of Paul's introduction, you need to remember that there are different ways that people have found their sense of identity throughout the ages, but also even today. Several ways in which people get their identity, and it might be one of these ways that we in this room are getting a sense of our identity. So what defines you most? Well, there's three general categories. I wonder which one you relate with most. If you were raised in traditional culture, the question is, it's based on where you're from. This is about your geography, your gender, your generation. Well, I belong to these people. I am from this place. Many sociologists call this the primary identity. And your chief goal then was honor. So where you're from, you got to honor your people. you got to honor your family. And if you don't honor your family, then you're full of shame. Many people find their identity through the question, where are you from? But in a more modern sense, especially in North America, the question is this, is it based on what you've done? This is what some call secondary identity, very prominent in our country. It's not about where you're from, it's about what you've done. 
your achievement, your salary, your job, your awards, your, your social status and social circles. It's all about achievement. It's the stuff that you fill in on your like LinkedIn bio, like look at all that I've done. And if that's where you're finding identity, you know what matters? It's not so much honor, it's achievement. Look at what I've done. But the flip side of that is when you don't achieve, then you failed. And that for many of us in this room becomes a part of our identity. We might've written in a statement that says, I am a failure, if we were honest. At least that's how we might feel. But there's a third question of identity. Many young people lean towards this. Is it based on what you desire? We're being told in our culture that you are defined by what you currently want. And what you want most is definitive of who you are. It could be your appetite, your drive, even sexual desire. Desire tends to be fundamental in our culture, though in ways that it never would have made sense in history. And so the chief goal in that is affirmation. I post on social media what I desire and I want everyone to affirm me. And if they don't affirm me, then they deny me and I don't even know who I am anymore. What defines you the most? Is it based on where you're from? Is it based on what you've done? Is it based on what you desire? I ask these questions because when you think of your identity as built on these you are building on shaky ground. I was struck when I read a book a while back written by an atheist, quoted him before, I find his books fascinating. His name is Alain de Baton. He wrote a book called Status Anxiety. So here's an atheist commenting on the fragility of our identity. He says, the attentions of other people matter to us because we are afflicted by a congenital uncertainty as to our own value. As a result of which affliction, we tend to allow other people's appraisals to play a determining role in how we see ourselves. Our sense of identity is held captive by the judgments of those we live among. That's how many of us live right now. How other people view us. Where am I at in relation to their opinion? But then he describes an ideal world. He says, in an ideal world, we would be more impermeable. We would be unshaken, whether we were ignored or noticed, admired or ridiculed. If someone praised us insincerely, we would not be unduly seduced. And if we had carried out a fair assessment of our strengths and decided upon our value, another person's suggestion that we were inconsequential would not wound us. We would know our worth. Well, I want to say to him, and I want to say to you, that the message of Christianity is that this world does exist. You can have an unshakable identity, but it is not based on what you desire, it's not based on where you're from, and it is not based on what you've done. It's something that you become because of God himself. And this is precisely what the introduction to Philippians teaches us, and it leads to joy. So from Paul's introductions, let me give you three reasons why you can have an unshakable identity. Three reasons why you can have joy through an unshakable identity. And the first reason is this, you belong to God. The first reason that you and I can have an identity that is not fragile 
in this fragile world, but unshakable is knowing that first and foremost, you belong to God. Now, Paul's self-presentation here is actually provocative. He begins in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He refers to himself and his colleague Timothy as servants of the Messiah. And in doing this, he actually turns the cultural assumptions of the day completely upside down. See, here's what we need to understand. In those days, in the ancient world, when you would write a letter like this, the way you introduced yourself, the heading, the prologue of your letter was essentially your resume. It was your CV. It was what you put forward to other people, giving them a reason for why they should read the rest of the letter. It was you saying, here's what's important about me. Here's what you need to know about me. And oftentimes, leaders and rulers and ancient influencers would all begin by saying, I'm from this family. This is my education. These are the things that I have accomplished. This is what I'm currently aspiring to do. And these are all the reasons. This is my resume as to why you should listen to me. Paul could have written saying, I'm from this family. I was educated in this school. These are my experiences. But he doesn't. Instead, and in direct contrast to the culture, the first thing he says about himself is, I'm a servant. I'm a bond slave. And there's really two implications of this. Number one, he views his identity as being dependent on God. And the second implication is that he is in service to God. That's what I want us to notice. He deliberately avoids making any kind of of claim of high status, but he actually assumes a low rank when he could have done the opposite. He had quite a resume. But in doing that, he's expressing his utter dependency on Jesus. See, friends, his identity isn't resting on what traditional cultures valued or what our modern culture values. He has a joy in belonging to God and this motivates everything that he does. He's a servant. That's the second implication. Not only am I depending on God for my identity, but I am serving God. Now in Greek and Roman culture, that title servant would would get like an ancient eye roll if you use that to introduce yourself. You're like, I'm a servant. They would have been like, oh my gosh, really? It's so low. And yet Paul wears it as a badge of honor. This is the first thing I want you to know about me. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Because for Paul, true freedom is about serving the right master. See, we read the word servant, especially as Americans, Westerners, you know, we read the word servant and we just think, I don't serve anybody. I serve myself. But it's such a lie. Like as the song says, if you're old enough, Bob Dylan, anyone, you got to serve somebody? I'll spare the vocal performance. (laughs) We all serve something. For some of us, we serve money. For some, it's about relationships or romance or trying to get affection or approval or build a reputation. But we often do it under the banner of like, you know, I'm not constrained by anything. I can do whatever I want. I'm free. But that's a false idea. See, in many cases, Liberation comes through constraint. 
Think about learning an instrument. If I just gave you a guitar today and you've never played in your life and I'm like, hey, here's the scales and you're like, no, I wanna be free. I'm like, oh, but it might be good to know the scale of C. Like that's a good play. No, shh, I just wanna be free to do what I want. It would be horrible. But if you learned the scales, if you constrained yourself to playing in that key, you would actually be liberated in playing music. Think about relationships. When, when, when you get married, you're constraining yourself to that person. At a wedding, you will hear like, I forsake all others and I give myself wholly to you. The way that you gain greater intimacy is actually to lose your independence. The two become one. That's how it works. So Paul's point when he's talking about servanthood and constraint is this. True freedom doesn't come through getting rid of boundaries. It's about finding the right boundaries. And Paul is saying to us, hey, you're going to be constrained by something. You're going to serve money. You're going to serve people. He's saying true freedom doesn't come through any of those. True freedom comes through serving Jesus Christ. He has an identity that comes from knowing who he belongs to. That's how he refers to himself. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Later on in the letter, he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's like, I belong to Jesus. I'm his. And therefore, I want to lay down my life in service of him. A concept that will get you eye rolls today. A lot of Christians are looked down upon because they say, hey, what's the purpose of your life? You're like, I want to serve Jesus Christ. I'm like, oh, I feel so sorry for you. You just have to like serve. Like, oh, that's so belittling. But you know what Paul would say? He'd say, you know what? I want to serve Jesus Christ. You know why? Because Jesus Christ served me. Jesus Christ laid down his life for me. Jesus Christ pursued me. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself on a cross for me. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 7. He says, but Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He says, I want to serve Jesus Christ because I look at what he's done for me and for the world in making himself a servant. The only natural response in a relationship with my Lord and Savior is to become like him. Friends, Paul's saying to us, all other masters will exploit you and disappoint you. And there's nothing so liberating as living for Christ because he is the only one who will never exploit you never disappoint you, but will save you and fulfill you and be with you forever. And this changes everything about the way you relate to other people. So the first reason you can have an unshakable identity no matter what's going on in your life is you belong to God. But secondly, the second reason you can have an unshakable identity is you belong with God's people. You belong with others. Knowing that you belong to God does not make you superior or inferior to others. Why? Because we are all accepted by God on the same grounds. Notice how Paul addresses others at the end of verse 1. He says, to all, not some, to all God's holy people or saints in Christ Jesus 
at Philippi, notice the order's important, together with the overseers and deacons. This is fantastic. Paul first refers to all of the believers as saints. And this is important because the term saint is often used in our common vernacular to describe elite level Christians. Like the rest of us are mediocre, but there are some who are saints. We even use the phrase that way, right? It's the, it's the, the older man or older woman in the church who just prays in the morning like, oh, such a saint. The one who makes the large donations, ah, oh, what a saint. But that implies that there's like a first and second class tier of Christian. Like when you're getting on the plane and you didn't get first class, but you have to walk through first class. It's like a very special form of torture. You come in, you've been waiting for like eight hours because it's LAX and it's just a nightmare. And then you like bring your suitcase through and you're like, oh, do we get mimosa? Oh, oh no, no, no. And then the curtain throws open and it's just chaos. And you're like, oh, yes. Yes, this is, this is where I, I do not belong there. Sadly, in the church, people live and other people treat others as if there were different tiers of Christians. Well, they're elite Christians. They're saints. But as for me, mediocre Christian, I'm in economy. And Paul is saying to me and to you, that is not true. There is no one Christian who gets this identity, this, this status of sainthood is not the special privilege of certain believers, but a promise to every believer. And that includes you. Notice that he defines them as being in Christ before he defines them as being in a location. It's to the saints, to God's holy people who are in Christ and who happen to be in Philippi. I love this. It's so punk rock of Paul. Their geography, their gender, their generation, the primary social identity in that day is taken a back seat. And he says, before I think of you as being Philippians, you are in Christ. Which is massive. Many of us, we find our identity in like where we're from or how, how we're raised. As many of you know, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area and I was raised to think that we were better than everyone in Southern California. But by the grace of God, I've slowly matured and been growing, you know, throughout the last few decades that I've been uh, down here. A lot of people are like, yeah, this is where I'm from or this is my country or this is my nation. And Paul says, before those things might be true, they are not the truest thing about you. Before it is true how you were raised or who raised you or where you were raised, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are in Christ. And that's how I see you. And that's how we ought to see one another. You are in Christ before we're ever in a particular location. This is a profound truth. Now, the way in which we live that out is going to come with, at times, some difficulties and some failures. Living in light of our sainthood status will not always be pretty. Paul will talk about maturity and growth later on. We're going to screw up. We're going to fail. We're going to sin. We're not always going to reflect this truth. But let me tell you that, even so, it never takes away this truth. When my family and I moved to the UK, we applied for our visas, got our visas, and we were given a permanent residence card. 
I carried it in my wallet. It proved my legal status and my right to live in the United Kingdom of Great Britain. And that was important because moving there, new country, you're like, oh, like, I don't have the accent. Or wait, I'm the one with the accent. Oh. And the cultures and the customs and the rhythms and like the way of living life in a great city like London, you often felt like, ah, oh, I'm just, do I even belong here? But in those times, I thought, wait a minute. Even though I'm not like living in the, you know, the, the, the best way that I ought in this culture, I remember I have every right to be here. Nothing about my failures changed the fact that I had in my wallet a government document that proved my right to be there. Friends, the same is true for you. Growing as a Christian, there may be times where you feel like, I'm not growing enough. I'm not doing this. Oh gosh, there's these areas of life I still need to grow. And be that as it may, and we will address those things. None of those change your legal right that you are in Christ because you have in your spiritual wallet, if you will, an ID that says citizen of heaven and it is given to you by Christ and no one can take that from you. And that is good news. You are... In Christ, you belong with God, and you belong with God's people. And notice everyone's included in this category. He even puts the leaders, the elders or overseers, and the deacons all on the same level playing field. I love that. Because even though men and women will have different distinctions, different offices, different roles, different history, the gospel doesn't destroy our distinctions the gospel destroys our divisions, our self-centeredness. The Philippian church, as we will discover this fall, had many areas of health as a community, and Paul will commend them for that. But there were some issues that he wanted to address in their lives, just as may need to be addressed in our lives. There was a subtle self-centeredness that would often result in some drama, and some division. And so Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. His concern is that we forget this. See, he's writing with a purpose. He said, hey, all of you, even though some of you guys are bickering and comparing yourselves in an unhealthy way to one another, some of you think you're better, some of you think you're more inferior, he says, you're all saints in Christ. But here's the problem. Some of us, we reduce the word all to some. Here's a test. When you wake up tomorrow morning and you pray, because we just did a series on prayer, so we know you got that on lock. When you wake up tomorrow and you pray, and you pray for Reality Ventura, can you pray this prayer? God, I thank you for all who are in Reality Ventura. Or are you like, God, I thank you for some of the people in Reality Ventura. <laughs> See, our tendency is to reduce all to some. We cherry pick what we like and don't like within the church. Paul says, don't you dare. If their faith is in Christ, then they stand on the same solid foundation of acceptance as you. In Christ. Some of us have forgotten this. Maybe some of you, because of your experience in, in recent years with the church, you've got a complicated history with the church and you don't feel like you belong. You don't know your place. And maybe you've developed this idea in your mind. Oh, I don't belong at Reality Ventura. 
I don't belong here. Like, look at them and look at what they do and look at those people who are involved in this. Friends, that is a lie because if you're in Christ, then you have a place, you have a part, and you have a purpose in this church and in any church who proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. And we have an opportunity to model that in the way that we treat one another. Segue to a plug for community groups that begin this week. Sign up today at realityventura.com. See, I know community groups and gatherings like that can be intimidating, but here's the deal. It's a primary space for us to live out the truth that Paul is teaching here. That we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different likes and dislikes, and yet we come together for Christ's sake. A lot of times we're judging community in the church on like, you know, do we have similar interests? Some of you are like, I didn't like the community. They don't like sports. I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about Star Wars while we're talking about things that don't matter ultimately. Like, what do we have in common? The whole point, friends, is the world should look on at the church and see that there are men and women who get together who may even be natural enemies outside of Christ, who do not share the same hobbies or likes or interests. They may not be from the same types of families or backgrounds or states or nations, but we gather together because of Christ and the world looks on and say, what in the world? How is that happening? And your answer is Jesus. Paul says when you do that, you know what happens? When we gather together and commit to one another, even when it's difficult, even when it's frustrating, even when it's hard, even when we don't always get along, you know what happens when we do that because of Christ? He says in Philippians 2, then as you're living like this, you will shine in the world like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Church, do you see the opportunity within Christian community. I'm not minimizing the difficulty of relationships in the church. There are many people, maybe in this room, where we've perhaps wounded or offended one another, or we don't always get along, yet we come together because of Christ, and when we do that, the world sees it. The world notices. And to use Paul's words, you shine like stars in the midst of a dark sky. The world is dark right now. And many of us are talking about it. My question is, what are we doing about it? Paul says, live in Christian community and you will shine like stars in this dark world. Now, some of you might say, okay, I get it. But how do I know this is true for me? Because for many of us, we still feel like our identity is, is fragile. And perhaps many of us, that's because we're standing on fragile ground. It's like my youngest daughter, I've used the illustration before. One time in London, she was trying to reach up to these high built-in bookshelves to get something. And of all the items in the house that she chose to stand on, it was not a chair or a box or anything square. She chose a ball. <laughs> because a ball is the most naturally logical thing that you should stand on. And as a result, she's standing on this ball like trying to reach like, oh, I can't reach it. And I'm like, cause you're on a ball. And it was as if the Lord is speaking to me in that moment, like, Tim, that's how your identity is. You're trying to find your identity in such a fragile place. You're standing on it. It's like standing on a ball. If I find my identity in achievement or in, you know, my relationships or my reputation, you're going to feel like you're standing on a ball. No wonder we're worried. No wonder we're anxious. Like, why, why am I so worried right now? God's like, you're standing on a ball. 
You need to stand on the immovable foundation of Christ. How can I know that's true for me? Well, that's the last point. The third point, the third reason that you can have an unshakable identity is that you belong because of grace. You belong because of grace. How could sinners become saints? In Paul's intro, he uses a word that captures the heart of the good news of the Christian faith. The why is nothing but the free favor of God. And so he says in verse two, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace, we become God's children. By grace, we are adopted into his family. Because of grace, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Because of grace, he will give us his Holy Spirit. Because of grace, we are planted within the church. Because of grace, we are gifted in different ways. It is all because of the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is referred to a total of 90 times in 104 verses in Philippians. I don't know what the statistics are, but that's a lot. 90 times in 104 verses because Jesus is the center of this letter. He is the grounds for your identity. He is the goal of your identity. He is the grounds of our community. He is the goal of our community. Jesus provides the why. It is a gift of acceptance and forgiveness and adoption for those who deserve condemnation. How is this possible? Because Jesus became a servant and died on a cross for your sin and for mine so that we could all be forgiven and so that we could all be accepted. He gives you an identity that is not achieved, it is received. It is grace and the result is peace. Peace with God and peace in your own life. So imagine making that list of I am statements, the things you think are important about you, both good and bad. Some of us, we might have written something like, I am successful. I am a failure. I am desired. I am despised. I'm amazing. I'm damaged goods. All of those things depend on what you accomplish or fail to accomplish. And more often than not, it's how all of us are finding an identity. But Jesus gives you an identity based on what he has accomplished. So you become new. So you can cross out that list and say, I belong to God. I belong with God's people. And I belong because of grace. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you have a fragile identity. And when you die, you will be separated from God forever because the identity is built on sin and brokenness. But Jesus came for you to die for you, to rise for you so you can be saved. Trust in Jesus today and know the joy of an unshakable identity. For the way for all of us to experience this is by bowing the knee to Jesus because the identity you need is not based on what you desire or where you're from or what you've done, but who you have become because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray now as we respond that 
as we sing and as we pray and as we take communion, that these truths would sink down to the bottom of our hearts. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would know that though many things in our life are true, the difficulties as well as the joys, the truest thing about us is that if our faith is in Jesus, we are in Christ. We belong to you and we belong among your people. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's been believing lies or building their identity on lesser things and they just feel shaky, they feel fragile, Holy Spirit, would you remind them who they truly are before anything else is true the truest thing is they are in Christ. And I pray this time of response would be a time of remembrance for them. Father, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Jesus, I pray that right now they would and know the joy of salvation. That they would simply say, Jesus, save me. I believe that you died on a cross and rose again for me. And Father, as we remember the foundation of who we are and all that you've done, I pray that we would experience joy. That we'd be able to say like Paul, man, you can take everything from me in this life, but the one thing that remains is the one thing that truly matters. The one thing that can never be taken away is I belong to Jesus. Holy Spirit, will you bring that truth to bear on our hearts in a powerful way right now and just rewrite the narratives and scripts in our own minds as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.